You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Hey crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you with the Comancheria. Today, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of you. That's right, Y-O-U. We're going to be talking about uh, training vision. Is it possible? Turns out, yes. And uh, But first, we need to probably get uh, uh, some things out of the way about why it, it can fail on us. And if there's anything we can do about to slow the progress of such things. Uh, we've offered uh, a print version of this. Uh, this is going to be an expanded version. The print version of the blog is, uh, we'll put out the uh, show uh, the uh, link to what's called Warrior Eyes, or the training for it is actually called Akisipanupui, which basically means, again, also Warrior Eyes. Now, here's the good news. You, that's right, you, I'm talking to you, are a hunter. A stalking predator. Your species was born and shaped by the forces that led Y.O.U., the only hunting ape on the planet, to stalk game, read sign, divine past and future behavior of prey. I mean, you are descended from these gimlet-eyed Sherlock Holmeses of the prairies and deserts and jungles, mountains and seashores, the sorts of things we write sagas about, uh, epic poems about, uh, you know, all, all sorts of uh, manifold uh, tales of warriors and legends. We always think of these people out there being able to read signs, see well, perform well. And that's basically us, this species. We did that. Now, whether the uh, personal while you still hunt or use your evolved skills to gather sustenance or not, that innate urge to stalk, seek, and emerge victorious is within you. I mean, we window shop and scroll at attempts to satisfy a psychology and physiology that craves the hunt, that burns to seek anew. Uh, now, we unfortunately have turned these skills from matters of survival and sustenance to uh, attempts to like figure out, why, why did Carol give me that weird look? Or what do these different events in the news really mean? We're looking for patterns. We seek to fill the tangible concrete skill gap that was uh, formerly used to look for the overturned leaf and snap twig that said prey or dinner went that way. And we've taken these hard-earned survival skills and well, we've turned them to the trivial. We've turned the truly marvelous to the trifling. Uh, not in all things, but we have to admit a lot of what we do is uh, we, we evolve these amazing attributes and uh, they, they yearn to be used. So we kind of, you know, spin them out in areas that, uh, come on, it's less that. We vicariously revel in post-game victories of teams that we don't even play for and longing urge to recreate that true revel that followed a victorious bringing down of large game with a band of hunting brothers and sisters. Much of what we do that appears to be civilized distraction is really but a pale imitation of hunting and gathering, a reading sign. We're, we're attempting to satisfy a larger visceral hole that was part of your species' physiology, psychology, your culture, hell, I'll say it, your spiritual self. And this is for far longer than this current quirk of history where we allow buttons and swipes and false thumbs up or down to stand in for the actual use of those opposable thumbs in pursuit of goals far larger and more meaningful than distraction from our internal on we, all right? Now, our bodies are living repositories of the attributes of an evolved hunter-predator. Now, with that said, much of what goes awry, not all, but much of what goes awry in the body and the mind of the hunter-predator prior to the inevitable senescence and entropy and sarcopenia is a chosen atrophy of the physical, mental, and spiritual attributes of the hunter. Now, as some of this has sounded like a poetic preamble to what's going on. Let's get into some nitty-gritty and show you how uh, really nuts and bolts tangible this can be by allowing something to atrophy, something actually vital, and we just let it slip by us. So we're going to choose that one attribute today that is vision, our hunter's vision, the warrior's vision. 
Now, keen sight of vision was prized by our, all early hunting warrior bands. Hell, is still prized. I mean, we all want to see. We want to see well. We want. We would love to have 20-20 vision, to be keen-eyed, to be hawk-eyed, eagle-eyed, gimlet-eyed was a vaunted attribute in prior days, and now we would still love to have those sorts of things. Excellent vision was prized for eons and is prized now. The question to ask is, has vision deteriorated over time? Well, consider this. 59% of people aged 25 to 39 wear corrective lenses. That's right now. Industrialized world. 59% of people. Okay, that's one point shy of 60%. So I state the obvious 59% is greater than half the population. Now, compare that 59% and the 25 to 39-year-old population to the number 93%. Now, what is 93%? Well, 93% of the people between the ages of 65 and 75 wear corrective lenses. So that ju- a number jumps from a 59% to 93. That's almost 100, right? Clearly, there is a natural macular degeneration that occurs. This macular degener- uh, degeneration population increases rapidly after about the age of 45. I mean, I myself experienced it. You know, once I hit around 50, I went from 20-20 vision to going, hmm, holding these books a little further and further away from me. Uh, the need for readers reaches that 90th percentile. Now, there are two questions asked about this. One, has this always been the case? Have we always needed this, or is this just a current quirk where we go to the eye doctors more, where we, uh, we detect for it more, we screen for it more, and we find it more? Could be, or is the uh, maybe not? The second question we're going to ask, is there anything we can do about it? Now, we're going to begin with question one, has this always been the case? Well, turns out no. In March uh, 2015, Nature magazine published an article by Ellie Dolgan uh, titled The Myopia Boom with the tagline, Short-sightedness is reaching epidemic proportions. Some scientists think they've found a reason why. And I'm going to quote from the article. Here it goes. Quote, East Asia has been gripped by an unprecedented rise of myopia, also known as short-sightedness. Sixty years ago, 10 to 20 percent of the Chinese population was short-sighted. Today, up to 90 percent of teenagers and young adults are. In Seoul, a whopping 96.5% of 19-year-old men are short-sighted. That's 96.5% crew. Other parts of the world have also seen a dramatic increase in the condition, which now affects around half of young adults in the United States and Europe. Double, hear that? Double the prevalence of half a century ago. By some estimates, one-third of the world's population, that's 2.5 million people, could be affected by short-sightedness by the end of this decade. All right, now to be clear, this is more than simply more folks are nearsighted than there were before. I mean, it actually says this is a signaling of something troubling. This is a canary in the coal mine. Here's more from the article. Quote, the condition is more than an inconvenience. Glasses, contact lenses, and surgery can help to correct, but they do not address the underlying defect, which is a slightly elongated eyeball, which means that the lens focuses light from far objects slightly in front of the retina rather than directly on it. In severe cases, the deformation stretches and thins the inner parts of the eye, which increases the risk of retinal detachment, cataracts, glaucoma, and even blindness. Now, because the eye grows throughout childhood, myopia generally develops in school-age children and adolescents, but about one-fifth of university-age people in East Asia now have this extreme form of myopia, and half of them are expected to develop irreversible vision loss. So we're back to me, away from the article. If we start out with this, we know there's going to be a macular degeneration as we age, so we've already started out with a deficit, that deficit shall increase. So... We're looking at perhaps we would like to alter that a bit for our youngsters, uh, the upcoming generation. And we'll also need to get to if we already have been afflicted by such things or self-inflicted. Is there anything we can do about it where we are? So it seems that the increase in incidence begins in childhood, but that does not explain the extreme jump to 96%. 
uh, at the age of 45, or does it? It seems the habits of vision use in our early decades can indeed affect what will be wrought down the road. It's very much like when we later on we want to learn, uh, lose weight. We might have uh, spent two or three decades packing on some extra pounds, and we want to drop it off in eight weeks, and surprised we can't do it. Well, if it took decades to do it, I'm not saying it's going to take decades to bring it down, but these quick fixes just don't exist. We've got to kind of jump on uh, the maintenance wagon early in such things. So what is to be surmised to be causing this epidemic of failing vision? That's an important question there. Why is this occurring? Initially, the culprit was considered a gene expression. That is, you know, a luck of the draw. It was insidiously on the rise. Now, for some reason, in beginning around the beginning of the early 20th century, the genes started moving through and more and more people were just, eh, you know, getting short-sighted. Let's go to the article. Quote, but it was obvious that genes could not be the story. One of the clearest signs came from a 1969 study of Inuit people on the northern tip of Alaska whose lifestyle was changing. Of adults who had grown up in isolated communities, only two of 131 had myopic eyes. But more than half of their children and grandchildren had the condition. Genetic changes happened too slowly to explain this rapid change or the soaring rates of myopia that have since been documented all over the world. So uh, this is a quote from uh, Dr. Song Mai Saw, who studies the epidemiology of genetics uh, and myopia at the National University of Singapore. Quote, there must be an environmental effect that has caused the generational differences, unquote. So get that in mind. We got a two out of 131, but the children of these people, we move up to half, and then we move to grandchildren. It's increasing over that. We're getting closer to that 59 and 93 percent. Now, some have point to the, pointed to book work and the use of screens. The more literate we become, the more we just stare at screens and stare at books. Uh, well, that answer holds a partial truth. You're thinking, well, you're just staring at the books all the time, and you, know, you don't have a, a chance to uh, really use those eyes. So we've also heard that don't read in low, low light, don't read around candlelight. Uh, but the, there's this tiny piece of truth in it, but it's not where you would expect it to be. Let's go back to the, uh, the article. Quote, there was one obvious culprit, uh, book work. The idea had arisen more than 400 years ago when the German astronomer and optics expert Johannes Kepler blamed his own short-sightedness on all of his study. The idea took root by the 19th century. Some leading ophthalmologists were recommending that pupils use headrest to prevent them from pouring, uh, peering too closely over their books. Now, so with that's basically one guy, Kepler says, yeah, I think this is what did it, and we kind of hung on to that. Back to the article. The modern rise of myopia mirrored a trend for children in many countries to spend more time engaged in reading, studying, or more recently glued, uh, glued to computer and smartphone screens. This is particularly the case in East Asian countries, where the high value placed on educational performance is driving children to spend longer in school and on their studies. A report last year from the Organizations for Economic Cooperation and Development showed that the average 15-year-old Shanghai, uh, in, in Shanghai now spends 14 hours per week in homework compared with five hours in the United Kingdom and six hours in the United States. Unquote. Now, we've got to keep in mind, uh, most of us aren't doing homework, but we're still just peering at those uh, screens. We're going to have the exact same effect as if we were studious, so we're putting all the study time in, and what do we know about with uh, what we're studying? Not a damn thing. Back to the article. Researchers have constantly documented a strong association between measures of education and the prevalence of myopia. In the 1900s, for example, they found that teenage boys in Israel who attended schools known as uh, yeshivas, where they spent their days studying religious texts, had much higher rates of myopia than did students who spent less time at their books. On a biological level, it seems plausible that sustained close work could alter the growth of the eyeball as it tries to accommodate the incoming light and uh, focus close-up images squarely on the retina, unquote. So, and again, think about that. That all sounds plausible. We spend all of our time 
time just working on close work, and then uh, that's why it happens. But consider this, there's another factor actually at play. So that's not the whole truth of what's going on. So think about, that's why I don't read or <laughs> don't look at my phone. I hardly know anyone who doesn't look at their phone. But if we get someone who uh, stays away from it and think that's the reason why I can stave it off, that's still not it. Attractive though the idea was, it did not hold up. In the early 2000s, when researchers started to look at specific behaviors such as books read per week or hours spent reading or using a computer, none seemed to be a major contributor to myopia risk. None of them. But another factor did. In 2007, uh, 2007 sorry, uh, Donald Muti and his colleagues at the Ohio State University College of Optometry in Columbus reported the results of a study that tracked more than 508 9-year-olds in California who started out with healthy vision. So we start with healthy vision. The team examined how the children spent their days, and sort of as uh, an afterthought at the time, they asked about the sports and outdoor stuff. Well, it's a good thing they did. After five years, one in five of the children had developed myopia, and the only environmental factor that was strongly associated with risk was time spent outdoors. Uh, Mutti says, well, we, we thought it was an odd finding, but it just kept coming up as we did the analysis. A year later, uh, Rose and her colleagues did arrived at much the same co- uh, conclusion in Australia. After studying more than 4,000 children at Sydney primary and secondary schools for three years, they found that children who spent less time outside were at greater risk of developing myopia. So here we gotta, gotta ask ourselves, which one is this? Is it close work or is it uh, uh, time spent outside? So is the reading, is, is that still factoring? Is that gonna be a problem? Well, Rose's team tried to eliminate any other explanation for this link. For example, the children, uh, uh, for example, the, the children outdoors were engaged in more physical activity, and that this was having the beneficial effect. But time engaged in indoor sports, which had no such protective associations, but time outdoors did. Now, keep that in mind. So it's just not the physical activity alone. It does have an effect, but outdoors seem to be doing it. And also, whether outside it, uh, the outside time, it didn't matter whether the children played sports, attended picnics, or simply read on the beach. That's close-up work. The children spent some much more time outside. Uh, we're not necessarily spending less time with books and screens and close work. It's just basically they needed to be outside. Uh, Rose says, we had these children who were doing both activities at very high levels, but they did not become myopic. Close work might still have some effect, but what seemed to matter most was the eye's exposure to bright light. So, is this the only factor? We have to say, is it just being outside? Is it just being exposed to greater distances? Uh, Well, if so, one would think the aforementioned Inuit who spend half the year in low light levels, we're talking six months a year, low light, and you would have less sunlight, there would be more myopic riddled uh, uh, population, and yet that's not happening. Some researchers think that the data to support the link need to be more robust. Ian Flitcroft, a myopia specialist at Children's University Hospital in Dublin, questions whether light is the key protective factor of being outdoors. He says the greater viewing distances outside could affect myopia progression, too. Light is not the only factor, and making it the explanation is a gross oversimplification of a complex process. So, here again, we got to keep in mind, it does seem to be this physical activity hmm, it's part of it. Being outside, sunlight seems to be part of it, but also being exposure to uh, depths of field is, uh, seems to be a great part of it. Sunlight is indeed a factor. 
but exposure to great distances. Consider this University of Wisconsin study that showed that those who engaged in vigorous exercise at least three times per week over a lifetime stave off macular degeneration due to aging longer than those who do not exercise. How large was this effect? Well, those who do not exercise were 70% more likely to experience macular degeneration. And now that study did not separate indoor or outdoor workouts. Sunlight and exposure to distance was not a factor here. So the positive effect in this study was activity itself. So as to question number two we were mentioned earlier, is there anything we can do about macular degeneration? Well, the answer seems to be yeah, to a large degree. We already have some clues. One, exposure to sunlight seems to be vital. Two, exposure to vast distances outside. Yep, and physical exercise does uh, indeed seem to help. And again, uh, as far as the the effect seems to be, uh, that would be in order. Well, they're not really a sunlight. In fact, distances seem to kind of come in there and coincide and then you got the physical exercise right behind it now it's curious to see that what state of the art science now has to say is really an echo of what was already assumed by old-time wisdom and we're not just talking indigenous populations more than a century ago Henry Edward Jeweler a renowned British eye surgeon offered this advice in 1904 he wrote in a handbook of ophthalmic science and practice quote that when the myopia had become stationary change of air a sea voyage if possible should be prescribed unquote in other words sunlight vast distances and shipboard activities let's go back to that nature article one more quote here it is we've taken a hundred years to go back to what people were intuitively thinking was the case unquote see now this is all a wonderful start but we got to ask also by any chance to the indigenous tribes of the Americas that remained in touch with this hunting nature for far longer than we nearsighted civilized ones have anything to say about vision improvement and vision exercises. Remember up front we said that uh, we evolved to be hunter-gatherers and the outside and the, the eyesight was part of it. We evolved to be able to do this and see well for a long, long, lengthy time. And we have to ask ourselves, do cultures that continue to do that uh, value it? Is it just happen as a quirk, or do they actually put something devoted time into it, some devoted uh, ideas behind it? And it turns out the answer is yes. Now, these aforementioned were the big threes we talked about, with the physical exercise, exposure to vast distances, and sunlight. But there are also an additional uh, 10 practices that uh, we've cataloged and we've put into our Suaketu program. Again, these are grouped under the name of the Ekasipanapue, or Warrior Eyes, in our Suaketu program, which is an eight-minute morning routine that brings all the senses online. I'm talking hearing and smelling and feeling and tasting and use the flaming uh, way to taste the air. Uh, we pro- it's a process called opening the, sen- the sensorium. And that's coming soon to the Black Box Brotherhood. Uh, if you're interested in such a thing, yeah, it'll be coming out soon. Have a, I'll put the link over to the extremeselfprotection.com to have a look at that. But mainly, hopefully today, you found this is incredible food for thought. I mean, we're absolutely amazing hunting-gathering animals. I mean, we're predators. We're meant to hunt, stalk, and have amazing Sherlock Holmes-like uh, a sensory engagement with the world. And then a lot of us are blunting it, and uh, we're doing it to ourselves. And But fortunately, there's something we can do about it. Have a good one, crew. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. Mm-hmm.